الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن استنى بسنة يوم الدين I'll praise you to Allah and may Allah speak and blessings again as last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and among those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day The issue of relationships between husbands and wives is one which will ultimately determine the success of Muslims in establishing communities, communities in which Islam thrives communities in which Islam will be transferred from the parents to the children. And as such, it is the duty of us to understand the nature of that relationship. How should it be? What is meant by proper treatment? Because for many of us in a North American context, assuming that many of us have grown up here or have been here, have migrated here and been here for a period of time in which we have been affected by the relationships which exist between males and females as promoted by the media and the systems of education etc. That effect has made it somewhat difficult for us to understand what the Prophet Muhammad had to say with regard to the relationship between males and females in marriage. So, if we are serious about understanding what our role should be, what our relationship should be, we have to look into the evidences from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, from the explanations given by the companions of the Prophet Muhammad and the early scholars of Islam, without bias, we have to put aside those uh, attitudes which we have developed from living in North America. The basis of marriage in Islam has to be one related to the duty of Muslims to Allah. Because marriage is not something as an institution which is outside of the bounds of Islam, it has its own set of rules, it has a different basis. No, it is a part and parcel of Islam. It is inseparable 
from the fundamental teachings of Islam. So, the relationship that should be there between males and females should be one in which each is helping the other to serve Allah. You all know well the statement in the Quran wherein Allah says, وَمَا خَلَقْتَ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنْسَ إِلَىٰ لِيَعْبُدُونَ I have not created the jinn and mankind except for my worship. That is the fundamental purpose of our creation. Therefore, any institution that we get involved in, whether it is educational, economic, or social, in the case of marriage, etc., such institutions should be functioning in such a way that it is helping us to fulfill our primary duty. And that is why Prophet had said that a woman is married for four different things. You are all familiar with the statement of the Prophet that they are married for their duty, for their family their genealogy, they are from a good family, so to speak, for their wealth and for their piety. And of course, when Prophet says this, that women are married for these reasons, we should not feel, well, he was only speaking to the men. What about women? What about their children? When he addresses the men, because men, generally speaking, represent the head of the family, when he's addressing the ummah, he oftentimes addresses the ummah through the men. So what he's saying about men marrying for these reasons is the same for women. Women marry for these reasons. Whether the man is handsome, whether he's from a well-known family, whether he has money, or very quiet. These reasons stand for both sides. And he went on to explain that the one who chooses a mate on the basis of piety is the one who succeeds. So this is this statement reinforces the concept that the relationship between husband and wife should be one in which they are helping each other to serve Allah. Because when we choose a mate who is pious, it means we're choosing one who is fulfilling his or her duty to Allah to the highest degree possible. That's what piety means. That we are striving to serve and to please Allah to the highest degree that we are capable. So we choose a mate on that day. Meaning that we're choosing somebody, inshallah, who will help us to serve Allah. And we would help them to serve Allah. So, the treatment, how a husband treats his wife, and of course, has said, the best of you is the best of you to your family. 
And of course, the term family oftentimes used in Arabic to indicate your wife. Wives and children are primarily your wife. You know, in Arabic, normally, uh, if a person wants to ask a man, meets another man, and he wants to ask about himself and his wife, he will not, he will ask, how are you? He won't ask, how is your wife? You know, in Arabic, uh, social exchange, they will not ask, how is your wife? And if a man asks, how is your wife? The man is, the other man is going to say, what do you want to know about my wife? <laughs> he will ask, how is your family? And the family, it actually means wife, but it's without being specific. Okay, so the term of my sentence, the best of you is the best of you to your family. Specifically, the best of you to your wife. And he said, and I am the best to my family. So, this is what ultimately, the best of us, because Allah has said in the Quran, إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ أَتْحَاكُمْ The most noble, the best of you in the sight of Allah is the one who fears Allah the most. The one who strives to serve Allah to the utmost of his or her ability. So, the one then who is best in the sight of Allah will also be the best in his treatment or her treatment to her, his or her mate. And that treatment, that relationship, the social exchange, is one of worship. It becomes acts of worship. We are rewarded every time a husband is kind to his wife, smiles at his wife, or a wife smiles at her husband, is kind to her husband, she and he are both rewarded for each other. This is why also the government has said the best of women is the one who pleases you when you look at her. She's obedient. And she doesn't hold back with regard to her material uh, possession. And similarly, the best of men. For a woman will be the one who is pleased when she looks at him. Not necessarily because he's handsome, but because when she looks at him or when he looks at her, they are reminded of Allah. They feel good that this relationship is one in which they are serving Allah as Allah wishes. Because if it were simply a question of good look, then when this female companion came to the Prophet Muhammad and she said to him that she cannot stand her husband, this is in Sahih this is the basis of the principle of divorce in Islamic law known as khula. She said, I can't stand it. Not because of his religion, or anything else. He's a good man. But I just can't stand him. I got married to him probably without seeing him first. You know, Prophet said, you should look at your mate. He took somebody's advice and just married without seeing him first. And, or maybe she saw him and 
she wasn't pleased, but she, due to encouragement of others to overlook these things, she accepted and married this person. So she got into a relationship with somebody who displeased her when she looked at him. He just, he just didn't like the woman. Now, you see, if this was something which was a part of what makes a man a good man, she would not have said, he's a good man. And the Prophet would not have concerned him. So his goodness had nothing to do with how he looked. We in Islam are allowed to like and dislike people for the way that they look. We respect their religion and everything else, but if we are not if we do not feel comfortable, we are not pleased in looking at this person because we are living with this person, you know, on a 24-hour-a-day basis, etc. Continuous. We do not feel good about it. Islam says, don't get married. No matter what the other considerations may be, though primarily, yes, primary consideration is piety, but still the consideration of our own feelings has an importance, such an importance that the Prophet made it the basis for the work. So when he said about the wife is the one who pleases the man when he looks at her, or as he said, conversely, it is a totality. It includes the physical, but more importantly, it has to do with the spiritual, the emotional. She feels good about that husband. He feels good about that wife. Because ultimately, they are helping each other to please Allah. So, the best man is one who treats his wife well. And the best woman also is the one who treats her husband well. We said that the first and most important duty in marriage is serving Allah. So that treatment involves if the husband gets up in the morning for pleasure. and his wife doesn't get up. He has to get up. He cannot allow her to stay and sleep. It is his duty to wake her up. Similarly, it is her duty to wake him up. This is part of the treatment. See, some people might think that, oh, my husband's very tired, you know, he had a long night, very tired, and so and so, I let him sleep. And he may appreciate it. You didn't wake him up for fudger. You know, he only slept for four hours, he needed more. He may appreciate it. But in fact, that is bad treatment. If the treatment, when we're talking about treatment between male and female, it's not in according simply to what pleases us. We're talking about treatment, good and bad, is according to what is pleasing to Allah. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about good and bad treatment. And what is pleasing to Allah. So what is pleasing to Allah is to wake up our husband. 
That may be pleasing to a husband to, to let her sleep. But faith involves pleasing Allah even if we displease others. Those who are close to us, those whom we love. That is faith. If we displease Allah in order to please those who we love and those who are close to us, then we have entered into shirk. It becomes a form of shirk. And this is why Allah says in the Quran, Beware of your wives and your children. They are enemies to you. You know, somebody says, What? It's supposed to be family love and good relationships. Why enemies? Not that they are enemies in the sense of, yes, they are just pure enemies. No. That they are potentially enemies because of our emotions. Because we can easily go beyond the bounds that are acceptable for love in Islam. That because of our love for our husband, we will allow them to do things which we know are displeasing to Allah. We will do things they may ask us to do things which we know are displeasing to Allah, things which may be personal to us in terms of the way we dress, or you know, things which may have to do with the family in terms of the food that is eaten in the house, or the way that you know the house is kept, or our relationships, social relationships with other people. You know, there are many, many areas which we may know to be wrong Islamical, but because our husbands prefer this we go along with it. And this may please them, but it displeases Allah. And our acceptance, our going along with it, is bad treatment. This is a bad relationship between a wife and a husband. A good relationship is one in which she reminds him of Allah. He gets up for Fajr, no matter how tired he is, she wakes him up. I'm saying this from personal experience. I know sometimes it has happened in the past, and sometimes it happens from time to time. You know, my wives may forget to wake me up, feeling sorry for me. But every time I get up, I tell them, please do not do this. They said, well, we shook you. We shouted at you. But you didn't get up. I said, don't stop at that. Get some water and throw it on me. Don't let me sleep past See, it, is, it seems to be compassion on the part of the woman. You know, after having tried to wake me up and say, you know, throwing water is cool. I don't mean baking a bucket and throwing it on me. I didn't mean that. I meant just getting a little handful and sprinkling it. You know, that change can cause you to wake up, right? Uh, it seems to be compassion to let the person sleep. But that compassion is compassion in the wrong place. Compassion which is acceptable to Allah, mercy, is waking that husband up. This is true compassion. Because when you wake that husband up, you are helping him to fulfill his duty to Allah. You are helping him to gain good deeds. 
which he would have lost if he didn't if he didn't wake up. Of course, if he slept you, because you didn't wake him up, he just held to account by a lot. Because if you know you're in a state of sleep, Salman Sallallahu said the pen is raised on the page of sleep. The one who's asleep until they wake up. And what? So a person that has to account of what happens during sleep. So he is not punished. However, by you not waking him up, he has missed the reward of Salatul which the Prophet said is the most difficult on the hypocrite. So we have helped him a step down the road of hypocrisy. He's not good. We let him sleep. We have helped him to gain one of the attributes of the hypocrites, those who don't get up for fajr. It's one of the signs of hypocrisy in Islam. So it is not a mercy. It is not compassion to allow a husband to sleep on. It is compassion and mercy to wake them up, to help them to gain what Allah has promised for those who establish the prayer. And this, I'm just giving one example. Of course, all of the various principles of Islam, we approach them in the same way. Whether it is zakah, fasting, etc., we approach them in the same way. We encourage each other to fast outside of Ramadan. Not just Ramadan. Ramadan is good, alhamdulillah, this is the foundation. But that foundation of goodness is one which should not be limited only to Ramadan. It's one which should be continuous throughout the whole year. This is why Prophet Muhammad had recommended for us to fast on Mondays and Thursdays of every week. So fasting becomes a way of life. In one year you have a month of continual fasting as, you know, a boost, a renewal. But throughout the year we continue that principle. So fasting becomes a way of life for us. Not just an instance in a life but a way of life, part of our life. So that means encouraging each other to fast outside of Ramadan. To be charitable. To share the wealth that Allah has blessed us with. And so on. Through all of the various principles and pillars of Islam. In order to give you, you know, an opportunity to be able to discuss these issues more. I'm not going into the details of every aspect. I'm just giving you an idea. An idea that we need to reflect on to really understand the basis of that relationship. Now, there is a misunderstood principle which exists in the relationship between males and females in Islam. And that is that a husband may beat his wife. It is in the Quran. Allah says that you warn them, advise them, 
Sayyidina is standing. If you separate from them in the bed, you're not standing, then you may sit there. Now, the feminist, <coughs> the feminist <coughs> approach is that this is not fair. A man may hit his wife and a woman may not hit her husband. This permission has been given to the man to hit his wife. This is the basis of, you know, violence in the family. The abuse of women. We have all these houses uh, for backward women. It is just promoting. So you may find some women, Muslim women, because of what exists in the society, in Muslim families as well as in the non-Muslim society, then they want to deny that which is in the Qur'an, and that is very dangerous. Very dangerous. Because the denial of anything which Allah takes in the Qur'an is kufr. A disbelief. You can fast and make salah and give all the charity you want. But if you deny one word of the word of Allah, you have disbelieved. You have cancelled the value of all those other deeds that you are doing. You have disbelieved in La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Because La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah means that what Muhammad brought to us from Allah the Qur'an and the Sunnah we have accepted in total. Total, without any reservation. That is Islam. If we have reservations, then we have reservations about Islam. So, Allah has given males permission to strike their wives within the family structure. Now, this is not just an open now permission, because to understand the Qur'an, we have to go to the Sunnah. We don't just take a word from the Qur'an, a verse from the Qur'an, and we don't look at the rest of the spirit of the verses of the Qur'an and, and what the Prophet had to say in the Sunnah. Because if you do that, you can turn the meanings of the Qur'an upside down. Allah says in the Qur'an, فَوَيْلٌ لِلْمُسَلِّينَ Curse are those who pray. You can take a verse out of the Qur'an and say, Better you don't pray. You're cursed if you pray. But Allah explains what is meant by that Allah says also in the Qur'an, فَلَا تَقْرَبُ السَّلَمُ Don't come near prayer. Again, he explains what he meant by that statement. It's a particular circumstance. Those who are cursed are those who are negligent in their prayer. Those who pray to be seen. If one is in a state of intoxication, one should not seek to pray. Now, of course, you say, well, well Muslim, you're not supposed to be intoxicated. But, you may go to a hospital, you know, emergency situation, you are, you know, some operation has to be done, and they put some kind of medicine in you where you enter into a state of intoxication. 
and the time for prayer comes. And you know, as a woman, as long as you're not in your period, when the time for prayer, prayer comes, whether you are stretched out in a bed in hospital with your arms and legs in traction, you know, you have to pray when the time for prayer comes. But, if you, this is the question here, if you are in a state of intoxication, then don't pray, because you may say what is displeasing to Allah. You are not in control of your mind and your faculties, and you may say nonsense. So you seek to remember Allah, doesn't mean that you forget Allah, you say, okay. No, you seek to remember Allah, but do not attempt to pray in that way. Wait until you come out, you've been excused by Allah. So the context has to be understood. The concept of the relationship between males and females is one of rahmah, mercy. Allah talks about that He created between the, the male and the female mercy. One of mercy. Mercy tells us that there can't be mercy if a man is brutalizing a woman. That's a mercy. And the Prophet Muhammad had stated very clearly that you should not hit your wives the way you may beat an animal or something. And the blow that he talked about, he called it a blow which does not break the skin, create a mark. You know, a mark of blood comes from soft. So in other words, it's not a hit, which is, you know, a punch or a and the Prophet ﷺ had also specified that none of us should strike anyone in the face. So even our own children, the child becomes backstock or whatever, you know, becomes very uppity or whatever. The natural reaction is to just give the child a chop, but this is forbidden to Allah. You do not slap any child in the face. So, hitting the child or a man hitting his wife should not be one of brutalization. That hit which the man is committed in the case where advice has failed, where separation in the bed has failed, is one of attempting to bring that woman to her senses. Just of catching her attention. So it is not one of brutalization, but that permission is there. It is a permission based on authority that the man has the final authority in the family. As the woman has authority over the children and she is permitted to strike the children, children are not permitted to strike back the parents. The wife is not permitted to strike the husband. This is an issue of authority. Where Prophet has said, if we see wrong, we should stop it with our hands. This is an, the area where we have authority. If we are unable to do so because we don't have that authority, then we speak out against it. And if we are unable to do even that, then we aid it in our heart. So it is one of our parts. That last resource is there as a part of that position of authority which the man has in relationship to his wife. Now, 
As I said, the Quran and the Sunnah clarifies for us the bounds of that principle. We should not deny it because it is clearly stated in the Quran and the Sunnah. We should reject and oppose the excessive which is a part of American culture where the brutalization does exist and it is something which may be handed down from generation to generation. As Muslims we have to get out of that cycle. We have to find ways and means of stopping it. But at the same time we have to recognize principles which are a part of religion that recognize them within the bounds that have been set by Allah and His Messenger. Another area in terms of treatment which is important is one of communication. Though the final say belongs to the husband because, as you said, the husband has that position of authority over the family. Allah has said that He has put men above women by a degree, based on what strength Allah has given that man and his looking after and maintaining his family, his wife, his children from the wealth that he has. Now, because he is in that position of authority, it doesn't mean then that he becomes a dictator, one who just commands, and the wife is your wishes my command. You know, whatever he commands, she just submits and goes, you know. This is not supposed to be the relationship. The Prophet described the believers saying, فَأَمْرُهُمْ شُورَ بَيْنَهُمْ Their affair is one of mutual consultation amongst themselves. So, a man in making a decision should consult his wife. There should be discussion involved. However, the wife has to recognize that ultimately the final phase belongs to the husband in making that decision. Now, in the course of communication, words may be used which are displeasing to Allah. I remember on one occasion in New York, Matthew Taqwa, a brother and his wife came to me seeking some kind of uh, arbitration. And issues, problems which existed in the family were brought up. One of the things which shocked me in particular, the sister was outwardly following, you know, the, the principle of Islamic God to the utmost. She was wearing complete hijab. The brother mentioned that the sister, you know, in the course of argument or when anything went wrong, she would call him an MS and so on. 
I sit there in the course of the discussion is talking very gently and, you know, nice words and I just talk. How? This could be coming out of the mouth of this sister? Incredible. But if she admitted yes, sir. Then argument gets heated, well, yes, she does call him a good friend of that, but they love This is improper. Improper from the part of the man and improper from the part of the woman. Our communication should not involve words which are displeasing to Allah. As the fact that I said, I will say good words, good things, or be quiet. If you feel so upset, better keep it to yourself, be quiet, be silent. But to start to curse each other, this is, this is, if all it does is, it increases the problem, it increases the, the, the enmity within the family. We as Muslims, and of course, some of you are, are not from North American indigenous or North American background, so you might, this might sound very strange, maybe you don't use these words, but in those of us coming out of the North American background, you know, where in common speech people use these words, these, these forbidden words, it's a part of common speech, you know, people, uh, you know, it's very easy for it to come out on their tongues in the course of arguments, etc. So it means that those of us coming from this culture have to work overtime to remove that characteristic from our character, from our behavior. This is improper treatment of our husbands and our wives. Improper. Why? Fundamentally because it is displeasing to Allah. It is displeasing to Allah for those words to come up of the tongue of the believer. So, our, commun our communication should be one of mutual consultation, discussion, recognizing authority, and one in which good words form the basis of our exchange. Actually, there is much that can be said and should be said, much more with regard to this relationship. But as I said, if we have understood the fundamental principle that marriage is an act of worship in Islam, that our relationship should be one of fulfilling our duty to Allah, that whatever exchange that takes place within the marriage structure should be one of pleasing Allah, one of seeking to please Allah, then every single act can be judged on the basis of this and can then be identified as correct or incorrect. We don't determine correctness and incorrectness on the basis of what we feel, what I feel, what I think, what I was taught, what I grew up with, 
It is not yet it's correct and incorrect. It's not the basis for determining it. Some of it may be correct, some of it may be incorrect. The basis, this is how we determine, this is how we work out our problem. The basis for determining correct behavior between males and females in marriage and out of marriage is whether it is pleasing to Allah. It is an act of worship which when done correctly earns us reward, which when done incorrectly earns us punishment. The last point I'd just like to mention before uh, giving you some initial questions before the Salah is the other statement of the Prophet concerning a woman who called by her husband to relationships, male-female relationships, sexual relationships, who refuses her husband but is cursed by the angels until she awakes. Now, again, looking at it from a feminist perspective, this sounds very, very oppressive, something wrong here. But if we try to look at it within the context of the Islamic uh, point of view, what is this referring to? Is this just an open statement, no matter what the man does, he could be a bum on welfare, you know, you're out working day and night and he's eating up your money and, you know, he just has the right to use it like that. No, this is not what it is talking about. That principle which the Prophet identified was one within the confines of a proper Islamic marriage, wherein the man is fulfilling his role. He has the right to you based on him fulfilling his responsibility to you which has been assigned by Allah. If he is not fulfilling his responsibility to you, then you are not required to fulfill your responsibility to him. That's the bottom line. So, if we understand it within that context where the man now is taking care of his responsibility, then you should willingly, no matter how you feel, you should willingly help him. You should give yourself to him to help him. Because if he does not find that help within his family, within the circumstance of his family, then he will be tempted by Satan to look outside. And outside may be within the confines of what is acceptable or may be unacceptable. And as such we may drive our husbands into hell. So we need to look at this principle within that context. Not as an open principle which just gives the man a right which without any kind of responsibility. No. In Islam rights always are based on Because Islam does not com command us to any form of oppression. Islam is just, it represents justice, and it has to be applied, all of its principles, 
as a part of a totality and not as something divorced from the context in which it exists. Very, very important. Whenever we look at Islamic principles, we have to look at them within the context, within the totality of Islam. But be careful, beware, that we do not allow our upbringing, the influence of this culture, to cause us to deny what Allah and His Messenger have commanded. Be careful. Very, very dangerous step. Now, we may hear something which sounds displeasing to us. Our first reaction should not be one of denial. Our first reaction should be to ascertain is this an authentic statement or not. Is it in fact in the Qur'an? Is the first reported from the Qur'an? Or is it in fact from the Sunnah? The authentic Sunnah. Why I say authentic Sunnah? Because, for example, we all have been exposed to the statement that Abdul Halal The most displeasing form of the permitted thing, the halal, to Allah is divorce. And on the basis of that, people will encourage people to stay together in the worst of circumstances. In circumstances when they should not be together. Because this is the most displeasing of things in the sight of Allah. However, this hadith is not authentic. You see? And because it is not authentic, the application of it is going to harm the Ummah. There is a general principle, of course, Islam does not encourage divorce. However, divorce is there to solve problems, to solve a problem which may arise. Divorce is there. And of course, non-Muslims like to criticize Muslims and Islam. Look at their divorce. You know, the man just has to say, you are divorced, as we heard it. Thou art divorced, thou art divorced, thou art divorced. Three times, that's it, finished. You know, this is divorce for the Islam is just such a easy and almost haphazard or you know useless kind of way of relating between males and females. However, that understanding is a distorted understanding because we know that it doesn't just occur like that. There are principles as to when it may be pronounced. A woman is in a period to connect. Why? Because when a woman is in a period, the reason why that man may be pushed to the point of pronouncing divorce is because due to her change in psychological uh, makeup as a result of that biological change. And it happens to many women, not to all women, but to many women. When tears come on, their moods change. And they find themselves saying and doing things that they don't know they shouldn't really say and do. And so such things can lead to the pronouncement of divorce. So therefore Islam does not allow divorce to be pronounced during a period of mental. To avoid causes which are 
inadvertent, not deliberate. So, and there are a number of other principles, you know, to save time, I won't, don't go through all of them, but the point is that it is not that easy. But at the same time, there is a certain simplicity there. The principle that Islam recognizes marriage as having taken place with a brief statement of I do. It also, and why not, recognizes that marriage may dissolve with a brief statement of I do. There is simplicity there, but at the same time it is within a context which helps to protect it from being just a, you know, easy, loose kind of an act. So, divorce is there to solve certain problems. And as such, when a situation becomes unbearable, where marriage becomes hell, then people should be allowed to be divorced without being hindered. So, going back then to the principle that what has been commanded in the Sunnah, if we don't understand it, it seems to us to be wrong. Before we make statements, before we make judgments, find out, is this statement authentic? If it is authentic, then our first reaction has to be one of acceptance. One of acceptance. But that does not stop us from seeking to understand the intent behind this command. Seeking knowledge is compulsory for us. To understand that command is important to us so that it helps us in that acceptance. So we ask those who know because our knowledge is limited, we go and we read and we seek to try to understand because when we have understood the rationale behind the command, then we can take it to heart and submission it fully. That is our right to seek that understanding. But, as I said, the foundation of that relationship has to be one of submission to Islam, to Allah, and the messenger. And the judgment of our relationship according to what is pleasing to Allah and what is displeasing to Allah. That, inshallah, summarizes what I would like to present to you this afternoon. We can take one question now before entering into the Avan, the Avan for us is going to come in a couple of minutes. So, we can just take uh, an initial question, and after the Salah, inshallah, we can then have a continuous uh, exchange of questions and answers until, until 4.45, inshallah. Question? And 
is that degree the same unit of measure? You know, same unit of measure as demanding one degree higher than the female, as when an individual prays in congregation versus um, as an individual? And is that degree based on a geometric um, Unit like a circle or something where the maximum is 360 degrees or, or what? You understand? Yeah. Okay. What is this degree? Uh, one in the Quran when Allah is reverse, refers to this principle, he said, he used the term Daraja. Daraja. And when in the Sunnah the prayer in congregation is referred to being 27 times or a translated at 27 degrees sometimes better to use marra which means a time huh? he didn't use garazan huh? yeah no some translations you have not seen it I mean I've seen it as I've seen it sometimes as degree. I've usually translated as time. Twenty-seven times there, because actually the term used in Arabic is more closer to time, you know? Uh, so as opposed to degree. And and the principle, the term used in the Quran is degree daraja. Now, you see, in modern language, degree has stood to mean like 360 degrees, etc. However, just as in English, a person gets a bachelor degree, we don't start to wonder what degree is this. Is this a 15 degree or a 90 degree angle? No, no. We don't. We understand degree here has another connotation. When, in the case of the man, as I was saying, that the degree referred to in the Quran, daraja, that the man is a above the woman by a degree. This is not a unit of measure. It's not one degree out of 360 degrees or out of... It is just representing a step. The term also in an eye, the reason it also means like a step. You know, a notch above. You know, meaning that the man is in a position of authority over the woman. That's what it's in reference to. Also, that Allah has given the man certain qualities which makes him stronger than the woman. Now, this strength is not necessarily a strength which makes him better. It's not a question of better because some people may assume that stronger means better. But not in this context. But that strength is something which Allah gives the man for him to fulfill that responsibility of authority. And this is why the, the family structure, you know, throughout history in the vast majority of places has been that the man is the hunter, gatherer, protector, maintainer, the woman looks after the family structure. You know, that is a, a norm which has stood throughout history because of the fact that Allah has given the male that that physical strength is one, of course, again, in fact, doesn't mean every individual male is stronger than every individual female, but it's a general principle. And this is why we know when you look in terms of athletics, etc., you know, men compete against men and women against women. Because 
the, they're not, the, the level is there. The top female sprinter, you know, doesn't sprint as fast as, you know, Olympic sprinter doesn't sprint as fast as the top, you know, high school male sprinter. I mean, the difference that is that derogate, that level, which allows created the man stronger, but this is for a purpose. It doesn't make him better, that he's a better person, Allah looks at him as better than the female, but he's given him these qualities of strength for fulfilling his responsibility. You know, it's the responsibility of providing and protecting and maintaining the family. InshaAllah, a Shaykh will continue to answer questions that you may have on the topic, of course, certainly. InshaAllah, uh, directing your questions uh, on the topic of treatment of husbands and wives. And uh, if you like to write those and pass them up, this will be a good way, inshallah. And the Sheikh will accept the uh, verbal questions also, inshallah ta'ala. And we will try to get to as many of you as possible. And we hope to finish in around 45 minutes, inshallah ta'ala. The husband one? Correct. I'm not certain of the surah. If you want to get the, the verse from that tonight, I can dig it up for you afterwards. I mean, I, the, the verse is known to me, but the exact uh, sure that it is in, I'm not uh, certain. So I, I, yeah, it is in Surah Nisa, verse 34. Verse 34. No, this is what I explained. It is explained, it explains firstly, That is the women who have become disobedient, who are refusing to, to function according to Islamic uh, principles within the home. You know, the woman is just, is, is not, you know, submitting to Islamic principles in the home. You first try to advise her, you know, first, then if they, that is not working, then separate from them in the bed. And if that still does not work, as a last resort, the husband may strike the woman. But as I said, there are conditions in terms of striking, it is not a brutalization, but a, 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 a smack, as you put it, or, or thank, as a means of getting their attention as a last resort to let them reflect. Pardon? Yes, yes. Not punishment. The idea from this is not to punish. Because all of the principles involved here is not punishment. When the husband advises her, he advises her with good words. He's not supposed to start cursing and screaming and no, this is not the way to advise. You know, to give uh, religious advice, this is what he's saying. Azuhanna. Then same thing when he suffers in the, in the bed. This is not punishment thing. This is also to bring us to, uh, to the understanding that our relationship 
is not just basically a physical relationship. Our relationship is based on pleasing Allah. And if, you know, uh, that is not there, then there really is no basis for our physical relationship. Okay, our sister's question, you know, concerning marrying brothers, marrying people of the book. Um, this, of course, this is not directly in our topic. Uh, there is an aspect of it that we can look at within the topic, but fundamentally the permission given for men to marry people of the book. We have to look first, I mean first thing, we cannot say that this is not allowed. Because we see it not working properly or the harm has come from it, we cannot then say no, this is not allowed, we will not allow this. Because Allah has made it allowable. So we cannot forbid what Allah has made allowable. However, at the same time, we need to look at the context in which this allowance is given and the purpose behind it. We see that in a circumstance where Muslims, there's a Muslim society, if a man marries a Christian woman or a Jewish woman and he maintains an Islamic atmosphere in his household, the likelihood of that woman eventually accepting Islam is very great. And the raising of the children as Muslims is ensured. This is the ideal circumstance under which a man may marry a person of the book. In a circumstance where it is a non-Muslim society and a man does not maintain Islamic principles in his household. In other words, he allows un-Islam, you know, or kufr to carry on, the way of the disbelievers to carry on in his household. And he has no control over the education of his children. Then this would definitely be a despicable circumstance. We cannot say haram because I said Allah made it halal. So we can't make haram what Allah has made halal. But it is definitely not a preferable circumstance. It is disliked in Islam. If the woman is one who, though she is a Christian or a Jew, prepared to submit to the Islamic principles within the household, herself to submit to the basic principles in Islamic dress, Code, and the children will be, will be going to Muslim institutions, going to the masjid, all this has been uh, assured, then under that circumstance we would say it is 
possible. You know, it is, not, it is no longer despicable, but it's a situation, it's a very possible situation. So, if a man is going to marry a Christian woman, should ensure that he chooses somebody who is not going to be at odds with his Islam, who is going, who is going to be destroying his Islamic household. I mean, that is a duty in terms of his choice. Though he has the permission, it's not just a blanket permission. Because Allah also describes the marrying of the people of the book as saying what? Al-Muhtanati. Al-Muhtanati. This is how he describes them, the people of the book, whether of the, 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 the women who are Muslims or people of the book. He describes the women as being Muhtanat, that is, those women who are modest in their behavior, not flagrant women who, you know, are involved in all kinds of relationships, etc., but a woman who has grown up or who maintains herself in a moderate fashion. That means that she's not sleeping with, you know, Tom Dukan House. That's not her background. A woman of that kind of background who is, who is non-Muslim, this is definitely in Islam, this is going against the principle of the ayah. Though it is accepting one part of the ayah that, uh, yes, she is a Christian, but it's going against the principle of Muhsan. And Muhsan. Okay, our sister's question concerning the principle of loving those who Allah loves and hating those who Allah hates. Okay, now, this is a general principle. <coughs> As Allah says in the Quran also, that we are not allowed to marry and mushrikat hatta yu'minna. So the, the mushrika, which is one who uh, worships other than Allah or people along with Allah, and Christians are included amongst the mushrikat, you could also take that argument to say, well, also, uh, you know, how can we marry a Christian woman, a man marry a Christian woman, when she's a mushrika? And Allah says you cannot marry the mushrikat. Now, we have to understand that just as in the principle of loving those who Allah loves, and not marrying the mushrikat, Allah has made an exception. You have a general principle, and Allah has made an exception. Right? That exception is specific for uh, Christian and Jewish women. Now, one, from the principle of, of love, again, this love has to be one limited to the bounds that Allah has set. You see, if I have accepted Islam, my mother is a non-Muslim. Does Islam say now I must hate her? My sister and brother are non-Muslims. Does Islam say I must now hate them? I cannot love them? No. The point is, there is a, a level of natural love. Because she bore me, she raised me, that relationship exists. I cannot deny that relationship. There is love on the basis of that relationship. But that love can never exceed those bounds where I now obey her desires in areas which are forbidden. Right? She has a dinner and she wants to have some wine with her dinner. 
I cannot sit at the table with her. Because the Prophet had said that we should not sit at the table with those who are taking, partaking in alcohol. So my love for her, though I love her and I don't want to offend her or displease her and so and so, I cannot allow that love now to displease Allah. So it has to be kept within that limit. The, the, the marriage of a Christian woman is one which Allah has made an exception of Allah has made this in a Jewish woman and the love that is there has to remain within those bounds. And that's why I said that really that woman should fulfill the description which Allah has said of her being muhtana. If she is muhtana, Allah loves that. Even though he doesn't love, you know, make her belief, but the fact that she's muhtana, there is something about her which Allah loves, which, which he has now made her acceptable. One, at least she is Christian. Two, she is muhtana. It means, inshallah, there's a good chance for her to become Muslim. The following question, uh, I have two on the same topic basically, that when it comes to considering someone as a potential husband, uh, are we allowed to displease our parents? In other words, if the parents aren't Islamically inclined or they aren't happy with their daughter who wants to marry a religious person, a pious person, they rather uh, would, they are against the marriage on the basis of uh, the fact perhaps this person is not, uh, has for worldly reasons. Uh, is it permissible for the woman at that point uh, to oppose this desire of the parents? What should she do Islamically? The obedience to parents is limited to the requests that they make which are in keeping with Islam. If they request or desire us to do anything which goes against the teachings of Islam, we are to disobey them. That's what we are commanded to do. So, Islam tells us to choose a good husband based primarily on his religion. If the parents refuse to allow us to marry somebody who is pious for reasons which are un-Islamic, maybe because this person doesn't come from the same country, or they're not from the same race, or the same color, or you know, any of the other uh, un-Islamic considerations, they don't have enough money. Now, if it means that they're not capable of taking care of us, because they don't have a job and, you know, no means, that is a valid objection. That is a valid objection. But if it is that he doesn't have a Cadillac and, and his own home, and, you know, if it's that kind of money, no, that's not valid anymore. If he has the means to look, means to look after the wife, then the parents should not object. Because someone says, I'm sorry, if a man comes to you, Seeking the hand of your daughter, with, with whose religion you are pleased. He's, he's, he's a religious person. If you don't accept his, his, his request, then there will be corruption in the land. This will be a basis of corruption in the Muslim community and society. So it is the duty of those parents not to stop their 
children if they wish to marry somebody of their choice who is a, is a religious person. If a person is put in a position, what should they do? A female. She then has the right to go to the Muslim body. There's a, inshallah, a Muslim body, maybe just a masjid, person who represents the head of the community there, who officiates in marriages. She has the right to go to that person and ask that person to take over guardianship of herself for marriage. And that person has the right after investigating, because of course, just not anybody comes and says, well, please be my guardian, I want to marry this person, you marry me. No, he doesn't just go ahead simply because, you know, whatever they say, no, he has to investigate. He needs to check it out, find out, you know, what in fact are the reasons for the objections, etc., etc., and if he, as a community leader or, or area judge who has been appointed for the Muslim community, you know, the judge who is in charge there, he ascertains that, in fact, the reasons for the objection are un-Islamic, then he now has the right to go ahead and marry that couple without the permission of the parents. Inshallah, the next question is again a summarization of several on the same line. What should a wife do if her husband is lax in his Islamic duties? For example, he does not get up to pray, or perhaps he uh, does some things that are against Islam, such as wearing gold or shaving his beard, uh, you know, he does not uh, fulfill his Islamic duties. What advice would you give for such a sister? First, our first resort, you know, should be to try to advise the husband. Of course, we said that relationship should be made based on pleasing Allah. So, the religion is good advice. We give each other good advice. We advise each other when we stray. Advise each other to remember Allah, to obey Allah and His Messenger. So we first try to advise the husband. By all means that we can. It could be verbal. It could be getting a book, you know, a very good book, or getting a tape, or, you know, we should try to utilize whatever means are available to try to give him that push to submit to Allah in whatever aspect that he is disobeying Allah. Now if we try this in different methods etc. and it fails, uh, what we can do is go outside of the family. We can go to a trusted brother in the community, you know, possibly to his wife or however the arrangement is in the community, and ask that brother who may have a good relationship with her husband to speak to him on our behalf. See, normally we should not, things which go on between a man and his wife should not be, the problems that exist should not be taken outside of the family, normally. But in a case like this, where it becomes disobedience to, to, to Allah and His Messenger and a person is, is at their wit's end, they've tried all the things to bring this person in line. And they are unable. They may then approach somebody, trusted person in the community who, for the purpose, not of just spreading what's going on in the family, gossip, you know, but one of uh, conveying, getting this person now to approach our husband and talk to them. <coughs> if after trying that, there is no response. The individual does not 
this man does not want to change his ways. Then the woman has to think seriously of whether she wants to continue in such a relationship. One in which a person is deliberately disobeying Allah. Not striving to change. Of course, if the person is found, I mean, he may not be able to give up some bad habit automatically, but he accepts, yes, it is bad, I need to change, I got to try, and he is trying, you know, give him a chance. But if there is no response, he doesn't care, he is insisting on carrying on in this direction, then one has to consider seriously that relationship. And the ultimate uh, step is to seek divorce in that person. There are conditions of children and issues that are involved. I know it's not an easy decision, but one has to, to consider seriously what the purpose and the fundamental goal of marriage is. As we said, it is to please Allah, to help us to fulfill our duty to Allah. So if this person is stopping us, is not helping us, is detracting, making our own efforts weaker and weaker, then it is advisable for such a person, if she has the way and the means to get out of that relationship, to get out of the relationship. It can take place through either requesting the husband to divorce her, or if she is unwilling to go again to the head of the community who handles these affairs, and seeking divorce by decree known as Kula, in which case she will have to return the dowry that he had given her. Uh, perhaps uh, as a one step, similar, in you answered most of this question, however, a question that's posed many times like this is that the husband in his Islamic duty generally is good. He prays, he fasts, but um, and sometimes in, the, in his treatment, when they argue, he may abuse her. He actually may abuse his wife physically or psychologically. Or, indeed, he may be falling short in some of his worldly duties and that he is not providing uh, as he should. And all of the weight of the household falls upon the woman's shoulders. Uh, what type of advice would you give to a sister like this who sees the husband is that he's trying to be a good Muslim on the one hand, but he falls into these evils on the other? I think it's the same situation, really, you know. I mean, this is just another aspect of that same uh, situation, because he is displeasing Allah in these actions. He is, he's become sinful, you know. By him not providing, while having the means to go out and provide, he is sinful. By him abusing her physically or mentally, this is sinful. So, if he is, um, you know, she heard duty first, the same step, she tries to advise him herself, either through tapes or speaking to him directly, getting books or whatever, and then if that fails, something, she goes to somebody else to try to speak to him, and having failed that, if she sees that the harm which is coming for the relationship, she now makes a, uh, you could say, a tabulation or a summary of her relationship, she looks at it. If the summary of it is negative, then she adds it all up at the end of the day. Is it a negative situation? then it's time to get out. If she adds it all up, it's still positive. There are some weaknesses there that he's not tackling right now, but she can bear it. If it's still positive, then it's better for her to maintain the relationship. This is what I would suggest. Um, 
why should a man marry a woman for wealth if he is to maintain her? Perhaps this is a misunderstanding or from the hadith that a woman marries, a man marries a woman for four reasons. Uh, why should a woman marry, why should a man marry a woman for wealth? Well, why should a woman marry a woman? No, why should a man marry a woman for her wealth if he is supposed to maintain her? If a man marries a woman primarily for her piety, he has a choice between a pious woman who is poor and a pious woman who happens to be rich. Islam does not say he cannot marry that pious woman who is rich. Her wealth is her own wealth. But that wealth may help him to do something Islamic. For example, he may be a person who has certain uh, abilities with which to develop certain things which may be beneficial to the community, to Islamic community, to the spreading of Islam. And there is a woman who is pious and she has means. Being pious and having means means that she will also contribute to this effort. So for him to choose to marry that woman for that fashion is perfectly okay and perfectly justified for him to do so. So, he may not be, you know, to say that he's going to marry a woman who has money because he wants her to look after him. This is what now is objectionable. He still has the primary duty of maintaining the family. And for him to marry a woman to look after himself is to turn the, the Islamic principle of family upside down. It is something despicable. Not something prohibited. Not something which should be despicable. Besides, when you mentioned your wife, what makes a man marry more than one wife? And is it a must? Uh, this is something which Allah has permitted in the Quran. It is a part of Islamic marriage system that a man may have as much as four wives at the same time. What makes a man marry another wife? This may vary from man to man. I cannot, you know, give a reason or the reason. There are many reasons. But the bottom line is that a man who marries a, another wife should be in a position to maintain and to look after that life. If he is in that position, then it is something permissible. The Muslim community today, in the Muslim community today, there are and there exist an excess of women. Women in a number of different positions, which may make them not necessarily desirable as a wife, to other single men. So, the permission that is there, given by Allah, is one which has in it a solution to some of the problems which will exist in uh, Muslim societies till the end of time. So, I would just say that the fundamental principle of marriage duty to Allah, pleasing Allah, doesn't change when a man marries 
a second wife or a third wife or a fourth wife. That principle stands under all those conditions. Um, one question here is not complete, but I think there's an important aspect that the sister who is still present can correct me on her intent. Please do so. She's asking, um, what about, uh, what should a woman, I think, what is, what is your advice to a woman, for example, as you mentioned, can't provide, can't, cannot provide for his family. He's unable to provide for his family, uh, such as him being in uh, prison. What is the advice for this woman in this situation where she is alone caring for the home while the husband is forcibly awake? Again, one has to look at the situation and judge. Is the husband not providing because he is unable to the fact that he has been in prison for one reason or another? And otherwise, that individual is a good Muslim and there is hope that he will be able to come out and maintain the family afterwards. He is the type of person who, if he were given the opportunity, would provide. So a woman recognizes this as a temporary situation that she will bear and struggle along with. Or is he a person who is just not a provider? He's just looking for an easy, you know, uh, life, you know, somebody to take care of him. You know, uh, he's in jail uh, due to major crimes that really uh, there's, I mean, it, it reflects on that person's own uh, personality, character. And if he comes out, it's the same person that he's coming, uh, she's going to find herself back in the same situation in such a circumstance, and it's better for her to leave that person. You know, she has to judge the situation objectively. She has to put aside the issue of how much she loves him or how much she doesn't love him and judge the situation objectively according to the Islamic criterion, Islamic principles. It is forbidden for a Muslim woman to be married to a non-Muslim man. This is clear from the verse in which permission is given only to men to marry uh, non-Muslim women, specifically Christians and Jews. And from the Sunnah where the daughters of the Prophet who were married to non-Muslims were separated immediately upon their acceptance of Islam. This is something that there is no difference of opinion among scholars about. It is forbidden. So a woman who stays or remains married to a non-Muslim man is a woman in a state of sin. Every time that she has relations with him, she is committing an act of fornication. That's the bottom line. It's an act of fornication. And as long as she remains with him in the home, she is in a situation with a foreign man, you know. It's just like going and living with a man who has no relationship to you, who you're not married to, because that marriage is not marriage in Islam. A marriage is not recognized. So it's just like her living with a man. 
that is sinful. Just living there, whether she is in bed with him or not, is sinful. So it is a state of sin from a number of different aspects. So the ayah, I can't um, exactly uh, quote right now, brother, maybe you can pick up the ayah, which specifically makes the permission given to men. The hadith is not a hadith, but from the seerah, one has to read the seerah, you know, about the Prophet and his, his daughters, what happened when they uh, accepted Islam, when they made hijrah, they left their husbands behind. And uh, from it we also know one of the daughters, when the husbands later accepted Islam, they were rejoined in marriage without their taking, a marriage taking place. So from it the scholars concluded that though the marriage is uh, no longer valid, as long as the husband has not accepted Islam, if he does accept Islam, then the marriage can be, become valid again without another marriage taking place. This is from the Sira. Another uh, direct question anybody would like to ask? Maybe the way they were brought up, or their family, and 